0: Chapter thirteen of Uncle Bernac A Memory of the Empire This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Uncle Bernac, A Memory of the Empire by Arthur Conan Doyle Chapter thirteen The Man of Dreams When I had escorted my cousin Sibyl from the presence of the Emperor, I was surprised to find the same young Hussar officer waiting outside, who had commanded the guard which had brought me to the camp. Well, Mademoiselle, what luck? he asked excitedly, clanking towards us. For answer, Sibylle shook her head. "'Ah! Oh, I feared as much, for the Emperor is a terrible man. It was brave indeed of you to attempt it. I had rather charge an unshaken square upon a spent horse than ask him for anything. But my heart is heavy, mademoiselle, that you should have been unsuccessful. His boyish blue eyes filled with tears, and his fair moustache drooped in such a deplorable fashion that I could have laughed had the matter been less serious.' lieutenant gerard chanced to meet me and escorted me through the camp said my cousin he has been kind enough to give me sympathy in my trouble and so do i sibylle i cried you carried yourself like an angel and it is a lucky man who is blessed with your love i trust that he may be worthy of it she turned cold and proud in an instant when any one threw a doubt upon this wretched lover of hers i know him as neither the emperor nor you can do said she he has the heart and soul of a poet, and he is too high-minded to suspect the intrigues to which he has fallen a victim. But as to Toussac, I should have no pity upon him, for I know him to be a murderer five times over, and I know also that there will be no peace in France until he has been taken. Cousin Louis, will you help me to do it?' The lieutenant had been tugging at his moustache, and looking me up and down with a jealous eye. "'Surely, mademoiselle, you will permit me to help you,' he cried in a piteous voice. I may need you both, said she. I will come to you if I do. Now I will ask you to ride with me to the edge of the camp, and there to leave me. She had a quick imperative way which came charmingly from those sweet womanly lips. The grey horse upon which I had come to the camp was waiting beside that of the hussar, so we were soon in the saddle. When we were clear of the huts my cousin turned to us. I had rather go alone now, said she. It is understood, then, that I can rely upon you. Entirely, said I. To the death! Cried Gerard. It is everything to me to have two brave men at my back," said she, and so, with a smile, gave her horse its head and cantered off over the downland in the direction of Grosbois. For my part, I remained in thought for some time, wondering what plan she could have in her head by which she hoped to get upon the track of Toussac. A woman's wit, spurred by the danger of her lover, might perhaps succeed where Fouché and Savary had failed. When at last I turned my horse, I found my young hussar still staring after the distant rider. "'My faith, there is the woman for you, Etienne,' he kept repeating. "'What an eye! What a smile! What a rider! And she is not afraid of the Emperor. Oh, Etienne, here is the woman who is worthy of you!' These were the little sentences which he kept muttering to himself until she vanished over the hill, when he became conscious at last of my presence. "'You are Mademoiselle's cousin?' he asked. "'You are joined with me in doing something for her. "'I do not yet know what it is, but I am perfectly ready to do it. "'It is to capture Toussac.' "'Excellent!' "'In order to save the life of her lover.' There was a struggle in the face of the young Hussar, but his more generous nature won. Sapristi I will do even that if it will make her the happier,' he cried, and he shook the hand which I extended towards him. The hussars of Berchini are quartered over yonder, where you see the lines of picketed horses. If you will send for lieutenant Etienne Gerard, you will find a sure blade always at your disposal. Let me hear from you, then, and the sooner the better. He shook his bridle and was off, with youth and gallantry in every line of him, from his red toupee and flowing dolman to the spur which twinkled on his heel. But for four long days no word came from my cousin as to her quest, nor did I hear from this grim uncle of mine at the castle of Grosbois. For myself I had gone into the town of Boulogne, and had hired such a room as my thin purse could afford over the shop of a baker named Vidal, next to the church of Saint-Augustin in the Rue des Vins. Only last year I went back there under that strange impulse which leads the old to tread once more with dragging feet the same spots which have sounded to the crisp tread of their youth. The room is still there, the very pictures and the plaster head of Jean Bart which used to stand upon the side table. As I stood with my back to the narrow window, I had around me every smallest detail upon which my young eyes had looked. Nor was I conscious that my own heart and feelings had undergone much change. And yet there, in the little round glass which faced me, was the long-drawn, weary face of an aged man, and out of the window, when I turned, were the bare and lonely downs which had been peopled by that mighty host of a hundred and fifty thousand men. To think that the grand army should have vanished away like a shredding cloud upon a windy day and yet that every sordid detail of a bourgeois lodging should remain unchanged. Truly, if man is not humble, it is not for want of having his lesson taught to him by nature. My first care, after I had chosen my room, was to send to Grosbois for that poor little bundle which I had carried ashore with me that squally night from the English lugger. My next was to use the credit which my favourable reception by the Emperor, and his assurance of employment had given me in order to obtain such a wardrobe as would enable me to appear without discredit among the richly dressed courtiers and soldiers who surrounded him it was well known that it was his whim that he should himself be the only plainly dressed man in the company and that in the most luxurious times of the bourbon there was never a period when fine linen and a brave coat were more necessary for a man who would keep in favour a new court and a young empire cannot afford to take anything for granted it was upon the morning of the fifth day that I received a message from Durac, who was the head of the household, that I was to attend the Emperor at the headquarters in the camp, and that a seat in one of the imperial carriages would be at my disposal, that I might proceed with the court to pont de Bric, there to be present at the reception of the Empress. When I arrived I was shown at once through the large entrance-tent, and admitted by Constant into the room beyond, where the Emperor stood with his back to the fire, kicking his heels against the grate. Talleyrand and Bertier were in attendance, and de Meneval, the secretary, sat at the writing-table. "'Ah, Monsieur de Laval,' said the Emperor, with a friendly nod, "'have you heard anything yet of your charming cousin?' "'Nothing, sire,' I answered. "'I fear that her efforts will be in vain. I wish her every success, for we have no reason at all to fear this miserable poet, while the other is formidable. All the same, an example of some sort must be made.' The darkness was drawing in, and Constant had appeared with a taper to light the candles, but the Emperor ordered him out. "'I like the twilight city. No doubt, Monsieur de Laval, after your long residence in England, you find yourself also most at home in a dim light. I think that the brains of these people must be as dense as their fogs, to judge by the nonsense which they write in their accursed papers.' with one of those convulsive gestures which accompanied his sudden outbursts of passion he seized a sheaf of late london papers from the table and ground them into the fire with his heel an editor he cried in the guttural rasping voice which i had heard when i first met him what is he a dirty man with a pen in a back office and he will talk like one of the great powers of europe i have had enough of this freedom of the press there are some who would like to see it established in paris you are among them Talleyrand. For my part, I see no need for any paper at all, except the moniteur by which the government may make known its decisions to the people. "'I am of opinion, sire,' said the minister, "'that it is better to have open foes than secret ones, and that it is less dangerous to shed ink than blood. What matter if your enemies have leave to rave in a few Paris papers, as long as you are at the head of five hundred thousand armed men?' "'Ta-ta-ta!' cried the Emperor impatiently. "'You speak as if I had received my crown from my father, the late King.' but even if I had, it would be intolerable, this government by newspaper. The Bourbons allowed themselves to be criticised, and where are they now? Had they used their Swiss guards, as I did the Grenadiers upon the 18th Brumaire, what would have become of them? What would have become of their precious National Assembly? There was a time when a bayonet in the stomach of Mirabeau might have settled the whole matter. Later it took the heads of a king and queen, and the blood of a hundred thousand people. He sat down and stretched his plump, white-clad legs towards the fire through the blackened shreds of the english papers the red glow beat upwards upon the beautiful pallid sphinx-like face the face of a poet of a philosopher of anything rather than of a ruthless and ambitious soldier i have heard folk remark that no two portraits of the emperor are alike and the fault does not lie with the artists but with the fact that every varying mood made him a different man but in his prime before his features became heavy i who have seen sixty years of mankind can say that in repose i have never looked upon a more beautiful face you have no dreams and no illusions talleyrand said he you are always practical cold and cynical but with me when i am in the twilight as now or when i hear the sound of the sea my imagination begins to work it is the same when i hear some music especially music which repeats itself again and again like some pieces of passaniello they have a strange effect upon me and I begin to oceanize. I get large ideas and great aspirations. It is at such times that my mind always turns to the East, that swarming ant-heap of the human race, where alone it is possible to be very great. I renew my dreams of 98. I think of the possibility of drilling and arming these vast masses of men, and of precipitating them upon Europe. Had I conquered Syria, I should have done this, and the fate of the world was really decided at the siege of Acre. With Egypt at my feet I already pictured myself approaching India, mounted upon an elephant, and holding in my hand a new version of the Koran which I had myself composed. I have been born too late. To be accepted as the world's conqueror one must claim to be divine. Alexander declared himself to be the son of Jupiter, and no one questioned it. But the world has grown old and has lost its enthusiasms. What would happen if I were to make the same claim, M. de Talleyrand would smile behind his hand, and the Parisians would write little lampoons upon the walls. He did not appear to be addressing us, but rather to be expressing his thoughts aloud, while allowing them to run to the most fantastic and extravagant lengths. This it was which he called oceanizing, because it recalled to him the wild vague dreams of the Gaelic ocean, whose poems had always had a fascination for him. De Meneval has told me that for an hour at a time he has sometimes talked in this strain, of the most intimate thoughts and aspirations of his heart, while his courtiers have stood round in silence, waiting for the instant when he would return once more to his practical and incisive self. The great ruler, said he, must have the power of religion behind him, as well as the power of the sword. It is more important to command the souls than the bodies of men. The Sultan, for example, is the head of the faith, as well as of the army. So were some of the Roman emperors. My position must be incomplete until this is accomplished." At the present instant there are thirty departments in france where the pope is more powerful than i am it is only by universal dominion that peace can be assured in the world when there is only one authority in europe seated at paris and when all the kings are so many lieutenants who hold their crowns from the central power of france it is then that the reign of peace will be established many powers of equal strength must always lead to struggles until one becomes predominant her central position her wealth and her history all mark France out as being the power which will control and regulate the others. Germany is divided, Russia is barbarous, England is insular, France only remains. I began to understand as I listened to him that my friends in England had not been so far wrong when they had declared that as long as he lived, this little thirty-six-year-old artilleryman, there could not possibly be any peace in the world. He drank some coffee which Constant had placed upon the small round table at his elbow. Then he leaned back in his chair once more, still staring moodily at the red glow of the fire, with his chin sunk upon his chest. "'In those days,' said he, "'the kings of Europe will walk behind the Emperor of France in order to hold up his train at his coronation. "'Each of them will have to maintain a palace in Paris, and the city will stretch as far as Versailles. "'These are the plans which I have made for Paris, if she will show herself to be worthy of them.' but I have no love for them, these Parisians, and they have none for me, for they cannot forget that I turned my guns upon them once before, and they know that I am ready to do so again. I have made them admire me and fear me, but I have never made them like me. Look what I have done for them. Where are the treasures of Genoa, the pictures and statues of Venice and of the Vatican? They are in the Louvre. The spoils of my victories have gone to decorate her. But they must always be changing, always chattering they wave their hats at me now but they would soon be waving their fists if i did not give them something to talk over and to wonder at when other things are quiet i have the dome of the invalides regilded to keep their thoughts from mischief louis the fourteenth gave them wars louis the fifteenth gave them the gallantries and scandals of his court louis the sixteenth gave them nothing so they cut off his head it was you who helped to bring him to the scaffold talleyrand no sire i was always a moderate at least you did not regret his death the less so, since it has made room for you, sire. Nothing could have held me down, Talleyrand. I was born to reach the highest. It has always been the same with me. I remember when we were arranging the treaty of Campo Formio. I, a young general under thirty, there was a high, vacant throne with the imperial arms in the commissioner's tent. I instantly sprang up the steps and threw myself down upon it. I could not endure to think that there was anything above myself. And all the time I knew in my heart all that was going to happen to me. Even in the days when my brother Lucien and I lived in a little room upon a few francs a week, I knew perfectly well that the day would come when I should stand where I am now. And yet I had no prospects and no reason for any great hopes. I was not clever at school. I was only the 42nd out of 58. At mathematics I had perhaps some ability, but at nothing else. The truth is that I was always dreaming when the others were working. There was nothing to encourage my ambition, for the only thing which I inherited from my father was a weak stomach. Once, when I was very young, I went up to Paris with my father and my sister Caroline. We were in the Rue Richelieu, and we saw the king pass in his carriage. Who would have thought that the little boy from Corsica, who took his hat off and stared, was destined to be the next monarch of France? And yet, even then, I felt as if that carriage ought to belong to me. But is it Constant? The discreet valet bent down and whispered something to the emperor. Ah, of course, said he. It was an appointment. I had forgotten it is she there? Yes, sire. In the side-room? Yes, sire. Talleyrand and Berthier exchanged glances, and the minister began to move towards the door. No, no, you can remain here, said the Emperor. Light the lamps, Constant, and have the carriages ready in half an hour. Look over this draft of a letter to the Emperor of Austria, and let me have your observations upon it, Talleyrand. De Meneval, there is a lengthy report here as to the new dockyard at Brest. Extract what is essential from it, and leave it upon my desk at five o'clock tomorrow morning. Berthier, I will have the whole army into the boats at seven. We will see if they can embark within three hours. Monsieur de Laval, you will wait here until we start for Pont-de-Brique. So with a crisp order to each of us, he walked with little swift steps across the room, and I saw his square green back and white legs framed for an instant in the doorway. There was the flutter of a pink skirt beyond, and then the curtains closed behind him. Berthier stood biting his nails, while Talleyrand looked at him with a slight raising of his bushy eyebrows. De Meneval, with a rueful face, was turning over the great bundle of papers which had to be copied by morning. Constant, with a noiseless tread, was lighting the candles upon the sconces round the room. "'Which is it?' I heard the minister whisper. "'The girl from the Imperial Opera,' said Bertier, "'Is the little Spanish lady out of favour, then?' "'No, I think not. She was here yesterday.' "'And the other, the Countess? She has a cottage at Ambleteuse? But we must have no scandal about the court, said Talleyrand, with a sour smile, recalling the moral sentiments with which the Emperor had reproved him. And now, Monsieur de Laval, he added, drawing me aside, I very much wish to hear from you about the Bourbon party in England. You must have heard their views. Do they imagine that they have any chance of success? And so, for ten minutes, he plied me with questions, which showed me very clearly that the Emperor had read him aright, and that he was determined, come what might, to be upon the side which won. We were still talking when Constant entered hurriedly, with a look of anxiety and perplexity which I could not have imagined upon so smooth and imperturbable a face. "'Good heavens, M. Talleyrand!' he cried, clasping and unclasping his hands. "'Such a misfortune! Who could have expected it? What is it, then, Constant? Oh, monsieur, I dare not intrude upon the Emperor. And yet—and yet—the Empress is outside, and she is coming in!' End of chapter 13